Well, if you're new to our church, uh, then what we do now is we just open up the Bible. And this morning we'll be looking up John chapter 16. And we just work verse by verse. And so that you can make sure that what I am saying is right there in the Scriptures. Uh, Honestly, we've taken a little hiatus from our study through the Gospel of John due to Christmas. But now that we are back in it, we're going to be picking up there in the 16th chapter of this wonderful book. Imagine you receive news that you would have just a few hours to live. How would you spend those remaining hours? Would you gather around your loved ones, your friends, and your family and reminisce? Would you quickly blurt out some last-minute wishes? Would you do one final round of golf? Would you ask for a meal to be prepared just the way that you would like? Well, what we see here in the Gospel of John is what's called the Upper Room Discourse from John 13 all the way into 16 and sometimes even 17, it's considered that. Well, that's precisely the setting. Jesus just has a few more hours to his life. So we see what is of most importance to him. In John 13, we see in these remaining hours that he wants to set an example of a servant. You remember what he did? He washed his disciples' feet. And then in verse 14, he says, You also ought to wash one another's feet. At the end of that chapter, he offers to them a new commandment that they love one another, just as he's loved them. And then John 14, he encourages them. He says, I go and prepare a place for you. And he prepares them by telling them that there will be another one that will come, a helper. That is the Holy Spirit. He prepares them again in chapter 15 by urging them to abide in Him, that they will bear much fruit. And then He warns them at the end of John 15, flowing into John 16, that if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And in these collections of chapters, we have a very realistic conversation It's not one in which he picks up a topic and then exhausts it and then moves on to another. Rather, he picks up a topic, talks about it, goes on to another topic, and comes back to the first topic, and he does that repeatedly. So when we get to chapter 16, we have a lot of material that he's already hit on, but he's now circling back to it. Now there's 33 verses here, and in order just to give us some handles... Allow me just to give you three different headings. The first one that we see here is that the hardships are coming. The hardships are coming. Now we're just going to read the first verse here, John 16, verse 1. It says, I have said these things to you to keep you from falling away. The Greek language there for falling away is the idea of a springed trap. And Jesus 
in his remaining hours with these disciples, is offering them words of warning so that they would not fall into a trap of discouragement. He is preparing them for some hardships that are ahead. It says there in verse 2, they, that is the opponents, they will put you out of the synagogues. Now when we read that in our year, we might say, well, what's the big deal about being kicked out of a church? There's plenty of other churches to go to. But in the first century, to get kicked out of your local synagogue, it was akin to being an outcast, to being ostracized, to being excommunicated from your society. It was just to say, you are now isolated from all of your peers. If you had your own business, it might mean that no one would do business with you anymore. If you had children, and you were hoping that your children would marry with the community or the village's children, well, that would be now taken off the table because you had been kicked out of the synagogue. In some cases, they would actually have a formal funeral to say that that person is no longer because they are now a follower of Christ. Jesus is preparing his disciples that they will be put out of the synagogues. In verse 2, indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. The opposition, the hardships will become so extreme that these followers of Jesus can anticipate death. And we don't have to go very far. In fact, the next book of the Bible to where we see that. In the book of Acts, there is a follower named Stephen. And he is put to death. And the Bible tells us that his garments are laid at the feet of a man named Saul who would later become Paul or the Apostle Paul, God would save him and he would become this great pastor, evangelist, church planter of the New Testament church. And his strategy would go from one city to the next, one synagogue to the next. He would preach the good news of Jesus and it would be met with resistance and persecution. Indeed, what Jesus is sharing is true. The people that were listening to this that day would find out firsthand that these words were true. The one historian named Tertullian said, The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Peter himself was crucified upside down. Andrew, the disciple, was crucified as he went to share the gospel in what is now the Soviet Union, Turkey, and Greece. Thomas, the disciple, went to India but was pierced by spears. Another disciple named Philip went to North Africa but was put to death there. Matthew went to Persia and Ethiopia was stabbed to death. Bartholomew, India and South Arabia, he too was martyred. James went to Syria, was stoned and clubbed to death. Simon went to Persia and was killed for refusing to sacrifice to the sun god. John, the writer of this gospel, was exiled to the island of Patmos where he died of old age. Paul, that great apostle, was beheaded in Rome under Emperor Nero. And Matthias, the one that replaced Judas in the book of Acts, was burned to death. 
So what Jesus is warning his followers of is hardship. And here's the thing. They'll think, according to verse 2, that they are actually offering service to God. But verse 3 tells us, And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I've said these things to you that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. He is preparing them. When this happens, may it not cause you to stumble or to be captured by this trap. It happened to me. It's happening to me. It will happen to you. So let me just give you a summary of the last couple of chapters. Jesus is saying to his disciples, I'm leaving. People are going to hate you, but go tell them about me. Now, does anyone want to sign up for that sort of endeavor? And I think that leads us then to an invitation that is needed. The work of a believer is impossible. So we need some help. Look what it says there in chapter 16. The second half of verse 4 says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, verse 5, but now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart, verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Confronted with this impossible mission of sharing the good news with people that hate them and will eventually kill them, he introduces to them the Holy Spirit. He says, it's actually to your advantage that I go. Because I'm only at one place at one time. But when I die, when I raise to life, when I ascend to go back to the Father, the Holy Spirit will come and He will always be with you everywhere you are at. It is actually a good thing that I'm going away. More work can be done because now you will have the Holy Spirit. You see that he is called in verse 7, the helper. And if ever there were a group of people that needed help that day and needed to know that there was a person that will enable them to work through these hardships, it was these 11 remaining disciples. And I have a hunch that there's a whole slew of people in this room today that are also in need of help. And there's good news, that when Jesus ascended, he sent the helper to help you to live out this life, to help you through any hardships that you are facing. Now, we talked a little bit about the helper in John chapter 14. We realized and learned at that time the Greek word there for helper could also be translated as an advocate or a lawyer. In John chapter 14, those were some really uh, helpful words 
because it took on the, the picture of a defense attorney. That perhaps the accuser, the devil himself, is smearing us with accusations and, and condemning us, where the Holy Spirit, who has sealed our salvation, serves as our advocate, as our defense attorney, and says, this person here has, has received the righteousness of Christ, and they are no longer under God's condemnation, know that they are saved from this point forward. But in chapter 16, this word seems to take on another angle, not that of the defense attorney, but of the prosecuting attorney. You see, there's all sorts of people in the world that believe that they are innocent and that they are righteous and they need a lawyer that will take the word of God and to be able to apply it to their sinful hearts to convict them that they are in need of a Savior. And it is good that the Holy Spirit has come. Look what it says there again in verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I did not go away, the helper would not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. In verse 8. It says, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Loved ones, whose responsibility is it to convict? It's the Holy Spirit's. And to that I say amen. And husbands and wives, it's, it's the Holy Spirit's responsibility to convict our spouses. It's our responsibility to share the word because this is what the Spirit uses, is the word. Now what does it mean to convict? The word convict means to bring to light, to expose. The Holy Spirit will refute the claims of those who say that they are innocent and righteous. We might say it this way, that the world is drunk The world is high. The world is stoned on their own self-righteousness. And it's the Holy Spirit that is the black coffee that wakens them to see who they really are. That they are sinful and that they need a Savior. The Holy Spirit's role to the world is conviction. And we see conviction in three different ways. First, there is conviction of sin. Verse 9, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. So as Jesus is about ready to send these disciples out, as Jesus sends us out, and he is sending us to people that might not like us, that might hate us, that might oppose us, we have this assurance that all we need to do is share the word. And the Holy Spirit is going before us, and he will use that word to bring conviction, to bring the light, to convince people of their sin. So the Holy Spirit goes out. He convicts them of their sin. At one time, they might have said, well, listen, nobody's perfect. We all make mistakes. But when the Holy Spirit does his work, that language changes to I'm lost. I'm fighting against God, and I need forgiveness through Jesus. 
When the Holy Spirit comes and convicts, He not only convicts of sin, but according to verse 10, He convicts of righteousness. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. A person thinks that they are righteous. And then the Holy Spirit reveals to them that their righteousness is like filthy rags. And their best attempts to get right with God on their own is a very poor, poor attempt. The Holy Spirit rubs our noses and says, you need someone to save you because you cannot save yourself. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Our righteousness needs to be perfect, and no one's righteousness here is perfect. But Jesus' was, and he gives us his righteousness. There's not only a conviction of sin, there's not only a conviction of righteousness, but there's a conviction of Judgment. Look what it says there in verse 11. Concerning judgment. Because the ruler of this world is judged. The Holy Spirit can take an urgency. The Holy Spirit can take someone that is just going on in life. And just living the way that they want. And he can take the word of God. And reveal to that man, that woman, that they're a sinner. That young person that they are in need of righteousness. That person that there is a judgment that awaits them. And with that creates an urgency to say, I must do something about that. Many years ago in Chicago, there was a man named Ari Torrey that was serving as a pastor there of Moody Church. And at the time, it had about 25 members. Rather, the church had about a 25-member committee of elders and deacons. And they met every Friday night for supper to go over the church roles to see which people needed attention. At one meeting, one of the elders got up and says, Brethren, I'm not satisfied the way things are going in our church. Now, we're having many professed conversions, and we're seeing many come to the church But I don't see the conviction of sin that I would like to see. I propose that instead of discussing business matters any further tonight, we spend time in prayer and that we meet on other nights also to cry to God to send His Holy Spirit on us with His convicting power. Everyone consented. And they spent not only the rest of the evening in prayer, but a number of following nights asking for the Spirit's convicting power. Now, not long after that first meeting, Dr. Torrey rose one Sunday night to preach. He saw seated to his left a professional gambler. As he preached, the man's eyes were riveted upon him. After the meeting, one of the church leaders brought the gambler to Dr. Torrey. The man's opening words were, Oh, I don't know what's the matter with me. I feel awful. He revealed how that afternoon he had been walking and saw an open-air meeting. Among the participants was a man with whom he had formerly associated in his sin. He stopped in to listen, but was not much impressed, and he went his way. But after he had walked several blocks, he felt moved to return. After the meeting, he was invited to church. Oh, I don't know 
What's the matter with me? I've never felt like this before. I feel awful. He trembled like a leaf and groaned again. The pastor tore. He said, I'll tell you what's the matter with you. The Holy Spirit is convicting you of sin. And that powerful man, trembling with deep emotion, that gambler who had never been in a Protestant service before, they both knelt and cried out to God for mercy. And that man left shortly afterwards with the joyous realization that his sins were forgiven. And that's what the Holy Spirit will do. This is what the Holy Spirit will, will do as Jesus is telling these disciples. Yes, I'm calling you to an impossible task, but I want to introduce you to someone. He is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit not only has a role to the world, according to John 16, but he also has a role to the church. Look at what it says here as we look at verse 12. He says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Now, we can conclude, I think, that these many things that he would like to say to them will be included in future New Testament books. Verse 13 says, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. And all that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I say that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Spirit will come. And he will not only convict the world of sin, but what he will do to those who have received the truth, those who have received the good news, he will guide them in truth that they would make much of Jesus. He will take the truth of God's word as you read it as you study it, as you memorize it, as you meditate on it, and apply it in your life. And you will know that you are a Spirit-filled person when you make much of Jesus. Someone has described the Holy Spirit's role as like a, a stage manager whose responsibility is to make sure that the star looks good. So he sets the stage, makes sure the lighting is just appropriate, even includes one of those flashing applause signs so that when the star offers the punchline, everyone worships or everyone celebrates and says, yes, that's right. This isn't my show. I'm I'm in behind the scenes, but I want to make sure that you all realize who the star truly is. He is Jesus. And so as Jesus is about ready to depart, he's about ready to leave these disciples with an impossible task of carrying out the mission, he tells them that I'm leaving with you the Holy Spirit. It's actually to your advantage. Because as you take the word of God, he will convict the world of their sin. And then he will also guide you in your truth. And so church family, you can tell what a spirit-filled church is like by how much they make much of Jesus. You see, a Spirit-filled church is a Jesus-centered church. 
This week I heard the story of a man that was going through the most difficult time in his life. His wife had left him, he had taken the kids. His job was in a season that had never been as difficult as it was, and it was all taking place simultaneously. And he had a choice. Would he become bitter and experience hatred towards his wife and towards his co-workers and his boss? Or would he enter into this impossible situation dependent on the Spirit's power? And he chose the latter. And as he was making his way through the seasons as the months and years passed, he could look back and say, by the power of the Spirit, he could look back at then his ex-wife and say, I have a love for her. He could look at his co-workers and his boss and say, God has done a great work in my life and given me a love for them despite all the hardships that I have experienced. Yes, you might find yourself in a difficult situation today, a hardship that is beyond what you can bear. But I got good news for you. As Jesus ascended, the helper came, and he is among us, and he is still working among his people. So you first have the hardship that is a coming. You have an invitation that is needed. And then Jesus offers these real truthful words, and he says to them, it's going to get worse before it gets better. I don't know about you, but I I appreciate someone that just says it the way it is. And that's what Jesus does here. So he says here in verse 16, a little while, that might be one to two hours, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. That is Eventually, I'm going to die, but I'm going to raise the life. You'll see me again. Verse 17. So some of the disciples said to him, said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. Verse 18. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. And I wrote the words comforting right there because there are times if, if these disciples didn't know what Jesus was talking about, well, there's times I'm reading the Scriptures that I find it difficult to know what he was talking about. Verse 19, he addresses that. Jesus knew that they wanted what they wanted to ask him, and he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, you will see me? Verse 20, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. When a woman is given birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Now, I've experienced this, not firsthand, but secondhand. And I've watched my wife on five separate occasions, some more so pain than others, as as, uh, she conceded to an epidural later in those pregnancies. But I I observed the pain that she had. I observed some of the complications 
that she had. And my mind went back to those. We've had a few birthdays this past week. And I don't know what she would say if she were here. But what Jesus is saying is that that gives way to the joy of holding that newborn baby. A baby that will last for more than just a few hours, but will last for years. And so Jesus is saying, yes, you're going through some hardships, but like like a wife that is experiencing the the curses of sin and child during uh, pain during childbearing. Just know that that won't be forever. And as that mom experiences the blessing of being able to raise that child, you too will experience the blessing of getting beyond those hardships. And then he says in verse 22, So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice And no one will take your joy from you. And that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. What he is saying is that joy on the other side of your hardships will be demonstrated in answered prayer. And then the final verses of John 16. He said, I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I'll no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name. I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you've loved me and have believed that I've come from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciple says, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you not believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Just a short time, as Jesus will be arrested, his disciples will scatter. But the Father will remain with him. In verse 33, it says, And I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world... You will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. As we look here at the last verse, he assures them once again that they will experience hardships. But there's a bit of an application there in verse 33 where he says, but take heart. That phrase, take heart, means to dare, to be bold, to be of good courage, to be cheerful and confident amidst all of the hardships that they will endure. So let me just leave you with two two takeaways here from John 16. The first is this. Jesus foretold of hardships to encourage He told his disciples 
that they would experience this so that when they experience these hardships, they would be reminded, I must be doing it right. Because this is exactly what my master told me would happen. That's what our doctors tell us, isn't it? When we go in for surgery, they they give us these details. And when you come out of surgery, they say, well, this is what you can expect for the first day. This is what you can expect for the first couple of days. And, And after a few weeks, you ought to be able to be able to do this. I haven't had many surgeries, but several years ago, I had LASIK surgery. And I remember the doctor saying, okay, you're going to come out of this surgery. And in the first day, you're going to be able to see pretty good. But on the second day, everything is going to be really blurry and fuzzy. And I'm so grateful that he foretold of those things because that's exactly what happened. And then he just kind of prepared me for what that first week was like. And we can endure it when we know that this is what Jesus has foretold. The second takeaway I think we see of this passage, it's the one that I will leave you with is that despite all of these hardships, the real focus of our life ought to be being controlled by the Holy Spirit is the key to living. He tells us the truth that life is going to be hard. But a part of that truth also is saying that you are not going at this alone. I am sending to you a helper. Speaking of Chicago and and Moody, D.L. Moody used to speak about the Spirit-filled life. And he would take a glass. Now, this is the nicest glass that we have in our house. It's an old mason jar. When you have five boys, this will do, right? And if it was your objective to say, I want to get all the air that I possibly can get out of this glass... Well, how would you do that? It's impossible, right? I suppose you could get a pump and, and try to pump it out, but you might, you might put pressure in there that would actually break the glass. And so what D.L. Moody said is that if you want to get all that air out, the real way you do that is that you fill it. And you fill it all the way to the brim. D.L. Moody would go on to say that the objective of your life is not so much to try to get out one sin after another, like air out of a glass. It's not so much to try to remove one hardship after another out of your life, but rather to say, no, what I ought to do is just focus on being filled with the Holy Spirit. And if I will if I will allow the Holy Spirit to control my life, and if I will be under His influence in every area of my life, then that will take care of the sin. And that will take care of the hardships. This is the focus that He has given to us. And I think that's the focus that He gives to His disciples here in John 16. So the question really isn't, what hardship or what sin are are you struggling with this week, the question is, are you yielding to the Spirit? Are you being controlled by the Holy Spirit? Are you asking Him 
Are you yielding to him in every area of your life? So that's the application. Would you bow with me? Lord, as we think about the challenges that awaited these disciples, just a couple of hours, they would be saying goodbye to their best friend, the one whom they'd set aside their lives to follow. Sorrow had filled their life, and now they were being reminded that as they would take this message of Jesus, that it would be faced with hardships, being cast out of synagogues, even being killed for their lives. I'm not sure that anyone in our room can relate to that sort of opposition. But he didn't leave them there. He said, I got good news. I'm sending the helper. I'm not only commissioning them, but I'm enabling them to know the person who will help deliver that, that mission. And if the Holy Spirit was sufficient to spread that good news around the world, He is sufficient to help us in whatever challenges and hardship we face today. And we just agree about that. And so the issue of our life is not so much, can I just move this isolated hindrance, hardship, sin out of it, but it's to say, well, Lord, would you fill me? Holy Spirit, it's not so much that I need more of you, it's that you need more of me, that I want to give all of myself to you. No more quarantining areas of my life off. But I want to surrender, 100% surrender to you. Loved ones, I'll just give you a moment to, to personalize that in your own words. Say, yeah, that's, that's what I need today. I need to be filled again, is what the Bible says, to be filled with the Spirit. Not under the influence of alcohol or drugs, but under the influence of God and His power. Why don't you just pray? Take time right now to pray for that. Our Father, we confess we need help and we need the helper. May it be said that we are a, a Spirit-filled church that makes much of Jesus. He is the most important person, thing in our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.